Welcome to the ParkCast series, episode 68, Decision-Making and Risk in Child Welfare. The ParkCast series brings evidence-informed child welfare practice to life by highlighting literature reviews from the Particle Archive. This specially developed research report reviews the literature on risk within the child welfare sector, including how organizational culture and climate can influence risk and decision-making in child welfare practice. Decision-making in child welfare. Child welfare practitioners make many decisions every day, and due to the nature of the profession, many of these decisions are made under uncertain circumstances. There are several points within a case where a practitioner must make a decision that will impact the trajectory of the case and the people involved. The decision to investigate, substantiate, transfer to ongoing services, remove a child from a home, or reunite a child with their caregiver are a few examples of the decisions that may need to be made. At each of these points, the inability to calculate the results and consequences of each decision in a definitive way adds an element of personal risk to the worker's practice and a risk to the child and family in question. When decisions are made under uncertainty, the probability of certain outcomes cannot be calculated and therefore are vulnerable to internal and external influences. Research on decision-making at the individual level examines important influences such as personal and professional experiences analytical and intuitive thinking, use of knowledge and cognitive biases and heuristics on the decisions that practitioners make in practice. Research on decision-making at the organizational level examines important influences such as the interpretation of policy, the impact of supervisors, and organizational culture and climate on the decisions that practitioners make. Because decisions within the child welfare profession are often made under uncertainty, it is difficult to assess which decisions may place a child, family, worker, or agency at greater risk. With an innate and natural tendency to increase certainty and reduce uncertainty, child welfare practitioners may develop defensive-like strategies to reduce the perceived level of current and future risk. These defensive strategies may be amplified by the fact that child welfare agencies often face scarce resources and budget constraints, forcing practitioners to do more with fewer resources. Increasing workloads, inadequate training, and understaffing often increase the pressure faced by practitioners to process cases quickly. Some of these more difficult working conditions can inadvertently influence a practitioner to make faulty decisions, display inflexible thinking, and to become both behaviorally and cognitively rigid in their practice. Similarly, at an organizational level, factors such as the media criticism and public scrutiny and outcry often result in child welfare agencies reacting defensively in their practices, becoming more rigid and risk-averse in practice to avoid or minimize low-probability but high-cost outcomes. This report will briefly explore the concept of risk and assessing risk, with a focus on individual and organizational factors that may influence whether or not a practitioner or agency may be more averse to risk. This review will also highlight how organizational culture and climate can actively or passively influence how employees perceive and experience risk and feelings of uncertainty, and thus influence the decisions that may be made in practice. Terminology. A growing number of risk assessment models have been developed and modified within the field of child welfare. Some of these models have been developed and modified for different agencies, provinces, private researchers, and entrepreneurs to meet some sort of perceived unique circumstance. Through this, 
a confusing array of language has been developed or coined to try and justify the creation of new models. The need to create novel terms to describe similar phenomenon is complicating research and interfering with the communication of fundamental concepts, thus compromising researchers' abilities to conduct comparative research. For example, some terms that have been used in literature to represent risk or the buffering of risk include risk elements, risk factors, risk contributors, risk correlates, risk aversion, risk intelligence, risk tolerance, safety threats, safety factors, threats of serious harm, imminent dangers, emerging dangers, future dangers, family concerns, protective factors, protective capacities, family strengths, and compensating factors. It is important that the child welfare sector use concrete constructs that have been defined and measured appropriately. Risk and risk assessments. The Ontario Ministry of Child and Youth Services defines risk as the estimation of the likelihood of future child maltreatment or harm. Risk of maltreatment exists on a continuum from low risk to high risk and is determined by analyzing the likelihood of a harmful event occurring, and if it occurs, the potential severity of said harm. It is the responsibility of child welfare practitioners to assess and respond to risk and make decisions about a child's care in response to the level of risk perceived. Risk assessments are important within the child welfare field, as these assessments help practitioners to assess the probability or likelihood that a child may be maltreated in the future, so that action can be taken to prevent this from occurring. This is different than safety assessments, which assess present conditions, the immediate danger resulting from those conditions, and intervention needed to best protect the child in question. Historically, risk assessments were based on a child welfare practitioner's professional knowledge and experience in the field. However, this practice has now become more formalized as structured processes and instruments have been implemented into the practice of child welfare. Tools used to estimate risk more often measure factors such as the nature and severity of previous maltreatment, caregiver and child characteristics, and characteristics of the family environment. Risk assessment tools involve a practitioner rating the child and the family on a set of stated risk factors to obtain a better understanding of the service needs of the child or family. Each item is assessed according to the instrument, and the scores are summed into an overall risk score that is then used to inform decisions made about the case. These processes and instruments related to assessing risk have been implemented under the assumption that they would be more accurate, reliable, and less biased. Even though some research has found that using risk assessment tools leads to more accurate judgments compared to clinical judgment alone, there is little research to support the validity and reliability of many models and tools being used in child welfare practice. Critical thinking questions. Validity. How does this risk assessment tool improve the judgment of risk in this case? How do you know? Would a worker come to a different conclusion without this tool? Which conclusion is more accurate and representative of the actual context? Reliability. Would workers using the same tool on the same case assign the same risk level for a particular child or family? Could biases influence judgments of risk when using the tool? creating inconsistent results. It is hoped that assessments and decisions made by practitioners are only influenced by case characteristics. However, practitioner influences and biases are impossible to avoid. Each child welfare practitioner will have a distinct risk threshold and a decision threshold, which are based on both subjective and actual experiences. A risk threshold refers to the point in which the estimation of likelihood of risk is high enough to happen compared to not 
While the decision threshold refers to the point in which the assessment of the case information is intense enough for the practitioner to take action. Workers may make the same assessment in a situation. However, due to differences in subjective and actual experiences, they may have different decision thresholds. For example, an intake worker with six months of experience may have a lower decision-making threshold than a worker with six years of experience, influencing the new worker to take action quicker. Thus, even though the same assessment occurred, the decisions that will now lead the family through the child welfare system may be different. Considering oppression and risk. Risk assessments and actuarial tools have been developed using data collected from cases previously referred to child protection services, which has repeatedly shown to be non-representative and disproportionate. Developing algorithms with this data may have incorporated existing biases into practitioners' judgments into assessments of risk and safety, inadvertently perpetuating systemic racism, classism, ableism, and sexism within child welfare practice. Even though there are various tools that can support a worker's assessment of risk, thresholds of risk and the uncertainties associated with risk can vary between practitioners. The varied experiences between child welfare practitioners and the attitudes carried about the problem causality and culpability of maltreatment and attitudes regarding the role and responsibility of the state in child protection can influence reasoning and decisions made in practice. As an example, it has been found that child welfare workers who have pro-removal attitudes, that is those who favor child safety, and anti-removal attitudes, that is those who favor family preservation, may assess risk differently, with those favoring child safety assessing risk at higher levels and thereby recommending child removal more often. Attitudes and perceptions regarding primary responsibility for child safety in that it's the caregivers versus the states are not inherently negative or positive, and organizations may prefer one attitude over another depending on their mission and mandate. It is also not uncommon for child protection systems and agencies to experience a continual shifting of values that are reflective of current public and professional perceptions of what is deemed best, where policies and practice swing between family preservation or child safety dependent. In general, as practitioner orientation moves towards child safety on a continuum and away from family preservation, the likelihood that a child will be placed in out-of-home care increases. Researchers have identified that having a shorter amount of time in the child welfare field, carrying a high caseload, and having lower confidence in community services and programs, resulting from a lack of inter-system collaboration, are associated with stronger child safety values. On the other hand, a longer amount of time in the field and a higher confidence in the ability of community services and programs to meet client needs, as well as a higher perception of support from organizations, are associated with stronger family preservation values. Years of experience in the field and carrying a caseload are two variables that are seemingly significant related to whether an individual holds a child safety or family preservation ideology. Considering experience and risk, time in the field and experience as well as type of work within the agency, are also distinguishing characteristics between new and tenured staff. It is important to recognize how these distinguishing characteristics can impact the potential disparities and ideologies between frontline positions and supervisory, administrative, or management positions. Supervisors and agency leaders must be aware of frontline workers' beliefs and orientations and how their differences in experience and position may lead to different ideologies and thus, different decisions in response to risk. 
Evaluating, understanding, and empathizing with disparate beliefs that frontline workers may have can better open lines of communication between staff. Qualities associated with risk aversion. Child welfare practitioners that are more risk averse may have the following qualities and tendencies. A greater focus on past history of parents. A stronger emphasis on traumatic life histories. A perceived future harm is more certain and more severe. Strong focus on child development and future child outcomes. Carrying a caseload and fewer years in the field. Child welfare practitioners that are less risk averse may have the following qualities and tendencies. A greater focus on current issues of the child and family. A perception of future harm is less certain and less severe. More experience in the field. Higher confidence in community services and programs and perceived support from within their organization. Some studies have found that organizational factors have the capacity to influence practitioners' aversion to risk, as organizational demands tend to limit a worker's ability to be flexible and innovative. It is important for agency leaders to critically assess his or her organizational environment to determine what factors can influence decision-making and how outcomes of decisions made in response to risk are shaped by intertwining factors across several ecological spectrums. There have been strong preliminary research findings showing that organizational culture and climate have an influence on practitioners' response to risk. If agency leaders want to shape or change responses to risk at an individual level, it may be first important to understand and assess the organizational culture and climate at the agency. Organizational culture and climate. Historically, much of the literature on organizational culture and climate has been conducted with the business and industrial world. However, we have seen the movement into the study of organizational social context within human service agencies within the past few months. Understanding organizational culture and climate within the child welfare sector has been particularly unique, as families served by this system are among the most vulnerable. Families that are served by the child welfare services often experience a myriad of challenges before becoming involved with the system, such as poverty, substance abuse, homelessness, mental illness, and involvement with the judicial system, often making it difficult to provide quality services to this population. However, within the child welfare literature, many studies highlight that positive organizational cultures and climates can buffer some of the challenges associated with providing quality and effective services. Organizational culture. Organizational culture is defined as a pattern of shared assumptions, values, and beliefs and behavioral norms. Culture has been described as the social glue that holds everything together. How the language, norms, values, rituals, myths, stories, and daily routines form part of a coherent reality that lends shape to how and what people do as they go about their work. These aspects of culture are passed on through the organization via new individuals and groups within the organization. Organizational culture includes the expectation and values of the organization, group, or team as a whole and is generally presented as the deep-rooted structure in organizations. Organizational culture is often best represented by the behavioral norms and expectations that depict the work environment. These are the norms and expectations that guide and direct the way that practitioners approach their work and specify priorities in their practices. Each organization will have a culture that is distinct to their environment and history. Organizational climate. Organizational climate is generally defined as a micro-construct of organizational culture. As opposed to the overarching larger structures of the organization, 
Organizational climate focuses on the individual's perceptions of the influence that their work environment has on their well-being and their ability to effectively achieve their tasks. The perceived impact that a work environment has on each practitioner's personal well-being is often labeled as the psychological climate. When practitioners who work in the same environment have a common appraisal of how their work environment impacts their psychological well-being, their shared perceptions often define the organizational's organizational climate. These perceptions that are shared by employees about the work environment also represent a common appraisal of the meaning and significance of the work that is being done. Organizational climate is more temporary and malleable compared to the organizational culture. As the perceptions one holds and the meanings one places on the experience of their work environments can change more freely. Measuring organizational culture and climate. The measurement of organizational culture and climate is fairly new within the field of child welfare. It has been shown to be captured well with the organizational context, OSC, measure. The OSC was developed over a 30-year period to help assess the organizational culture and climate that has been used in both RCTs and national surveys within the child welfare sector. Evaluations of these constructs generally includes the level of rigidity, resistance, and proficiency within an organization's culture, and the levels of engagement, functionality, and stress within the organization's climate. The child welfare research community has begun to examine child welfare organizational culture and climate and how these interconnected constructs can influence behavior at the individual level. The following concepts are measured within the organizational culture aspect of the OSC. Proficiency, an understanding that the well-being of the children and families is foremost. Practitioners are competent and provided with current information about practice and workers are encouraged to utilize critical thinking in their decisions. A sample OSC question for proficiency is, members of my organizational unit are expected to have up-to-date knowledge. Rigidity, a key definitions that are made solely by management and have no place for input by practitioners. Organizations are operated through bureaucracy, rules, and regulations. This construct measures how much discretion or flexibility practitioners have while completing their tasks. Sample OSC question related to rigidity. I have to ask a supervisor or coordinator before I do almost anything. Resistance. Stringent methods of providing service. Resistance and criticism towards offering a new method of practice or strategies to overcome barriers. This construct measures the practitioner's openness to change or new ways of providing services. A sample OSC question related to resistance is, members of my organizational unit are expected to not make waves. The following are constructs measured within the organizational climate aspect of the OSC. Engagement. Practitioners feel efficacious about their ability to effectively support the children and families they serve. Practitioners perceive that their actions are important and worthwhile and that they are emotionally invested in their work. Practitioners feel involved with the decisions with organizational development. A sample OSC question related to engagement. I feel I treat some of the clients I serve as impersonal objects. Or, I have accomplished many worthwhile things in this job. Functionality. Practitioners perceive their organization, coworkers, and administration as supportive in order for individuals to do a good job and fit in successfully with the organization. 
a sample OSC question related to functionality. The agency provides numerous opportunities to advance if you work for it. Stress. The perception that individuals feel emotionally exhausted, they're overloaded with responsibilities and do not have the necessary tools or support to successfully fulfill their role. A sample OSC question related to stress is, the interests of clients are often replaced by bureaucratic concerns. Organizational culture and climate in practice. There's a significant association between aspects of culture and climate and the services that families receive. The effectiveness of services, job satisfaction, worker attitudes, and receptiv receptivity to new practices. Child welfare agencies are with more proficient, less resistant, and less rigid organizational cultures will have less stressful, more functional, and more engaged organizational climates, thus creating a work environment where practitioners can effectively develop the well-being of children and youth. Within this body of empirical research, work environments that have had more functional organizational climates are seen to offer higher quality case work services and have lower employee turnover rates. Similarly, more functional organizational climates have been associated with significant improvement in children and youth psychosocial functioning over a seven-year period, as well as having fewer out-of-home placements in child welfare systems. Conversely, Child welfare agencies that have more rigid, more resistant, and less proficient cultures will have more stressful, less engaged, and less functional organizational climates. Theoretically, organizations that have more rigid, resistant, and less proficient cultures will be more averse to risk. Developing and sustaining positive culture and climate. Strategies at the organizational level. Use organizational culture and climate tools to measure the environment. Implement evidence-based interventions to improve climate and culture. Encourage innovative thinking. Focus on participatory decision-making and allow practitioners to have a voice in organizational decisions. Show employees what behaviors are expected and rewarded and ensure that the work environment supports those behaviors. Build resiliency in supervisors. Communicate confidence in the organization's ability to create positive change. Develop shared leadership within all levels of the organization. Provide opportunities for learning. Communicate and reinforce a strong organizational vision, priorities, and implementation goals. Recognize the importance of change and utilize change management processes to carry out new programs and other forms of change. Recommendations at the supervisory level. Encourage the adoption of best practices and strengthen fidelity to established protocols. Promote self-efficacy in workers. Build resiliency in workers. Build role, role clarity. Involve supervisors in decision-making. Provide supervisors working with staff to translate evidence into practice. Empower workers to provide individualized services and supports. Provide mentoring, observation, feedback, one-on-one -on -one consultation, and role modeling. Strategies at the worker level. Prioritize client well-being. Provide individualized services and supports. Develop innovative ideas. Implement evidence-informed practice and daily tasks. Organizational social contexts that are adaptive 
tend to be early adopters of new ideas, tools, and practices that are evidence-based or evidence-informed with the hope of ensuring effective services. If there is a disconnect between the organization's intent to be innovative and the behaviors elicited by practitioners, change will not occur. The intention to pursue behaviors associated with change are best enacted when environmental conditions support the intention of behavior change. There are various models of change that can be implemented at an organization. Each agency may adapt a chosen model of change to best suit the needs of an organization. However, most should share common features and characteristics. An example of a top-down model of change that agency leaders use to implement change is Cotter's change model. A summary of this model involves creating a sense of urgency, developing a coalition, creating a vision and strategy, communicating the vision, empowering broad-based action, experiencing short-term successes, enacting more change, and anchoring the new approaches into the culture. The ARC Intervention Many organizational interventions have been designed to improve culture and climate, yet few have been tested specifically within social services and child welfare. Most of the interventions that have been designed are based on theoretical assumptions and lack rigorous scientific support. This, was not, this does not mean that they will not improve aspects of an organizational's culture and climate. However, more research is still needed to confirm this. One model that does show promising outcomes within several RCTs is the Availability, Responsiveness, and Continuity Model, ARC. The ARC model organizational intervention has been designed to create more proficient organizational cultures. Proficient organizational cultures are associated with innovative behavior in the workplace which has been linked to positive client outcomes within mental health and social service settings. This model has specifically been shown to improve organizational social context, increase job satisfaction and commitment, reduce staff turnover, and support evidence-based treatments and improve service outcomes. By focusing on an organization's ability to support practitioner adoptions of evidence-informed practice, and reduce job-related service barriers, the ARC intervention can support agency service leaders to transform their organizations. A brief summary of the three ARC strategies that can support changes to an organizational culture and climate are listed below. The first strategy is embedding principles of effective services into the organization. An organization's strategic goals or priorities are the pillar of the organization and reflect what is most important to that organization. However, priorities that are espoused can be thwarted by operational demands, leaving organizations promoting one mission but failing to follow through. Within human services fields, improving client-based well-being and outcomes are often a main priority. The following guiding principles support consistent and effective services. Be mission-driven, not rule-driven. Be results-oriented, not process-oriented. Be improvement-oriented, not status quo oriented, be relationship centered, not individual centered, and be participation based, not authority based. Step strategy two, shared mental models. Mental models are heuristically based cognitive processes that form the basis of reasoning and interpretation and strongly influence an individual's behavior. If wanting to change the behavior at an individual level, it is important to ensure that cognitive processes are reflective of the desired outcomes. This strategy helps develop shared mental models between agency leaders and administrators, management, and frontline staff. 
Components such as openness to change and psychological well-being are necessary to ensure organizational members adopt and implement service improvement efforts. The thinking and the behavior of members of the organization should complement the five guiding principles. A shared belief that team members at all levels of service should feel psychologically safe to take interpersonal risks to improve service efforts and problem solving. This includes constructively critiquing current practices, accepting suggestions from colleagues, and being open about, to learning about past decisions. Strategy three, organizational component tools, a three-stage process. This strategy includes 12 organizational component tools that are necessary to improve an organization's capacity to support innovation, to identify and remove service barriers. These 12 tools place explicit priority on innovation in pursuit of high-quality services and well-being of clients. Stage 1. Collaboration. This includes leadership development, relationship development, and network development. Stage 2. Participation. This is team building, information and training, feedback, participatory decision-making, and conflict management. Stage 3. Innovation. This includes continuous quality improvement, goal-setting, job redesign, and stabilization. Conclusion. This research report discussed the concept of risk within child welfare decisions in practice. Decision-making in practice, decision-making in child welfare practice is complex, and decisions must often be made under uncertain circumstances. There is generally always some level of risk when making decisions in child welfare practice. So tools and measures have been developed to minimize risk and facilitate the decision-making process. However, the research on these measures tends to be weak, and there is a risk of perpetuating systemic issues and oppression when relying solely on algorithm-based approaches to decision-making. Incorporating an evidence-informed lens is recommended to overcome these limitations. Algorithm-based risk assessments should be used in conjunction with the professional's clinical judgment. The available research evidence in consideration for biases and systemic issues. Individual factors, such as the child welfare practitioner's experience levels and broader organizational factors like climate and culture, can contribute to the overall level of risk aversion within child welfare decision-making. Developing and sustaining positive organizational culture and climate may help child welfare professionals to avoid overly risk-averse decisions. Specific models to assess and improve organizational culture and climate that are supported by research evidence were presented. These include the Organizational Social Context Assessment Tool, the Cotter Change Model, and the Availability, Responsiveness, and Continuity, ARC, Intervention. Further approaches to create meaningful and positive organizational change can be found in the PART website and in PART guidebooks. You have been listening to the Partcast series, episode 68, Decision-Making and Risk in Child Welfare. The Partcast series is produced by Practice and Research Together, a Canadian membership-based organization that promotes the understanding and use of evidence-informed practice at all levels of child welfare service. For more information and to gather resources, please visit www.partcanada.org.